Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to us this morning to sustain us according to your promises and so that we will live and our hopes will not be dashed. Oh Lord, we know that we can so often be discouraged and disheartened, but Lord, we pray that we would depend upon your word this morning, which comes from you, the God who is dependable and ever faithful and true. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in 1 Samuel 15, and uh, well, in the book of 1 Samuel, and pick up where we left off last time, where Samuel has, the Lord's prophet, has told the first king of Israel, Saul, to go and wipe out the enemies of the Israelites, the Amalekites, and that's what we looked at last week. And then we, uh, we have this next section from verse 10 through to the end of the chapter, where Samuel confronts Saul for his disobedience in not obeying the Lord's commands fully. Uh, This comes at a time when the Israelites are transitioning from having a different judge lead them in battle and against their enemies to having kings. They've asked for a king. God has given them Saul. And we have been watching the downfall of Saul, which has led to this point in chapter 15, verse 10, where we read that the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I'm grieved that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. The Lord here is expressing that he is grieved that he has made Saul king. And it's interesting, this word grieved here can actually be translated, the Hebrew word is repent, that God has repented that he has made Saul king, which is interesting when we consider what repentance means. Repentance, we generally associate in the Bible with a change of mind, and that's what some of the translations actually have here, that God has changed his mind about having Saul as king. And we see that regularly is the interpretation of that word for humans. If we look at Jeremiah 8, Verse 6, it says, No one repents repents of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. That's a very good example of someone who is unrepentant. They do not change their course. They continue exactly where they were always intended to be. Whereas if you do repent, you turn 180 degrees from where you were going and go back in the opposite direction. And so here we see God actually being expressing that he is repentant of making Saul king. And this is a problem, a dilemma for us as we read through the passage, because if we look at chapter 15, verse 29, what do we read there? In verse 29, it says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. And it's the exact same Hebrew word that we see in verse 10, Uh, Verse 11, I should say, verse 11, that is there in verse 29. So in verse 11, it says that God repents. And then in verse 29, it says God does not repent. And then if we go down to verse 35, we have the same word again in reference to God. Verse 35, until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was repentant. The Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. So we have a bit of a dilemma here because... In two verses, it says God repents, and in one verse, it says that God does not repent. So what are we to do in this instance? How do we solve this dilemma? Well, there's different solutions that are proposed, and some translations try to uh, 
by the, the solution that they propose is to look at the different shades of meaning of the word repent. And so we see that in verse 10, uh, verse 11, sorry, of the NIV. In verse 11, it doesn't have the word repentant there. What does it have? It says that God is grieved that he made Saul king. Uh, and then in verse 29, it says that the Lord does not change his mind. So grief is substituted for change of mind. And then back into verse 35, we see the NIV has grieved there. And so the way you solve it is by looking at the way that God is grieving, but he doesn't change his mind in verse 11 and verse 35. But in verse 29, it's talking about a change of mind. Well, that's all well and good until you have a different translation, which consistently translates the word the same. So uh, if you look at the ESV, it has regret in verse 11, it has regret in verse 29, and it has regret that God regrets in verse 35. And in the King James, it has repent in verse 11, repent in verse 29, and repent in verse 35. And so if you're reading in one of those translations, uh, not in the NIV or the NAS, uh, the New American Standard has regret in verse 11, change mind in verse 29, and then regret in verse 35. But what are you to do if your translation doesn't bring out those shades of meaning of the word repentance? Well, some people actually use uh, this chapter as a proof text for the false teaching that is known as open theism. Open theism is a fairly new doctrine in the grand uh, scheme of things. Uh, there are old doctrines uh, that come up again and again, but then there's some new ideas that get proposed from uh, different times, and particularly last century. Open theism came to the forefront, which basically says that God doesn't know the future as he gave God a man free will. So man has free will, and so then if man has free will, God can't quite know what you or I are going to do tomorrow. And so God is basically always playing catch-up and so he then has to repent of decisions that he made yesterday because you have changed the course of what you were going to do. And so God is always adapting himself, and that's why it's open theism. It's always open to changes tomorrow based on what you do today. But of course, that goes against what is taught in Scripture about God's sovereignty. For example, in Isaiah 46, God says, I make known the end from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come? I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. There is no open theism in the Bible. God knows the beginning to the end. He is not playing catch-up based on your decisions you make today. He knows what you're going to do today. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. And so his purposes always stand. Another way that people try to solve the dilemma of it saying in one verse that God repents and verse 29 it says that he does not is by reducing the repentance here, uh, the change of mind, the grieving to an anthropopathism, uh, which is a very technical word, but basically anthropo is man and then pathism, passion. So God is being described in terms that we understand as humans. So it's it's like uh, we have anthropomorphisms, which are where it says that God has an arm. Does God really have an arm, a mighty arm? He doesn't have a mighty arm, but it's a way for you to understand. It's a metaphor that God uses. So when it says he repents, he's actually not really repentant. It's just an expression because we know what repentance is in our minds, where we change our mind, we repent of different things. And so God then gives us that word to try and get us to comprehend something of what he's doing. The problem with just reducing it to one of those, is that it can become that we start to see God as completely impassive 
and that he does not love when it says he loves. That's just a way for us to try and understand God, but he's not truly able to love, and he's not truly able to get angry. His wrath is just a way of us to understand. And so the passions of God are reduced to just something that he uses to communicate with us but are not really there because, of course, God can't change. He can't get angry because he can't change. He can't get loving because he can't change. As we read in verse 29, he does not change. He does not change his mind. But isn't there a way that we can say that God can change and not change without an inconsistency? And I believe there is. Mustn't we firstly affirm that God in his being does not change as described in Scripture? As in verse 29, where it says, he, is the, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He does not change. He does not repent. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. And that's supported in Scripture. We've got it there in verse 29, and we've got it in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. And in James, that passage that we had read for us before, James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So there in Scripture, very plainly taught, God does not change. But mustn't we also affirm, as I've already alluded to this morning, that God does act as described in Scripture. God's not frozen in time. He does not change, but he acts all through the Bible. Again and again, we see the Lord acting. He creates, he sustains, he redeems. And the, we see marvellous actions from the Lord. Just consider the Lord taking on flesh and dwelling amongst us. The marvellous action of God. God does not change, but yet we see him acting again and again in the pages of Scripture. So we've got to hold both those truths together. Now, how do we do that? Well, I think at a minimum we can say, and this helps us to understand the passage, this is the key with all my study this week to understanding this passage of the dilemma that is there. Can't we say that God does not change in the way he acts? God does not change in the way he acts. As situations in his creation change... God changes his actions, but his actions are perfectly consistent, always. Following, God has set up, let's put this forward, God has set up general principles, laws in the world, and promised to always abide by those. For example, let's turn to page 768 of your pew Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 18. Here's a principle that the Lord has put in place and will always abide by. He will not change. Chapter 18, Jeremiah, verse 7. Jeremiah 18, verse 7, page 768. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and he says in verse 7, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed... And if that nation I warned repents, same word that we've got back in 1 Samuel 15, of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended for it. Here we see a general principle that the Lord has set forth. If you are disobedient... 
I will bring disaster upon you. If you repent, I will withhold the disaster. If you're being obedient, and I've said I will promise that you will be blessed, but then you are disobedient, I will then bring disaster upon you. I will change based on the situation that is then changing. And this principle is what we see with King Saul back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. God made Saul king. But God had expectations of Saul as to how he would live, as to how he would operate as a king. And that included being obedient in chapter 15 and destroying all the Amalekites. But Saul dropped the ball, so to speak. He was disobedient. He didn't fulfill the requirements of the Lord. He was not obedient. And so God changed his mind based on the principles that he's always held and does not change according to what he sees in Saul. And tells Saul, you are no longer king. And in verse 29 says, and I do not change my mind. Based on what you're doing, the disobedience I see, the way you continue to fail as king, you're not going to be my king anymore. I'm taking the kingdom from you and giving it to somebody else. And I don't change my mind on the way I operate. And we can see this principle at work in other parts of Scripture and particularly in the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, God behaves in the same way with the city of Nineveh. How so? Well, Jonah preaches God's word in the city. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's what God has said. Forty days and it's going to happen. But what happens? The Ninevites change. The Ninevites repent. We read in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. God said, you're going to be destroyed. They say, oh no, we're sorry. Then what does God do? God changes his plan. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. That's the NIV translation of the same word, which is repentance. God repented and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened based on the way that they had behaved. And was Jonah surprised? No, he wasn't. Jonah knew all along that if the people repented, then in 40 days the city would not be overturned. And so we read in chapter 4, verse 1, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents or repents, is the same word, from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take my life away, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah knew God does not change. But he also knew God does change. What did he know God does not change? God does not change his principle. If the people will repent, he will forgive them and not overthrow them. God does not change with his principles. But he knows that God will change in his actions towards the people of Nineveh if they repent. Are we following? A modern equivalent. I'll give you one other illustration. A modern equivalent to Saul's situation would be an unemployed man finding a job. Let's... Consider a man, he applies for a job, he receives an offer, he signs a contract, and is appointed to the role. He has a job now. After a few weeks, he slackens off in his work. He arrives late, leaves early, without completing his work. He comes into work one day. The boss says, you're fired. Someone else is already sitting at his desk, doing his work that he was meant to be doing that day. 
The man claims that's not fair. I have the position, not that guy. You can't change your mind. You gave me the job. This is not fair. But the boss says, my mind is made up. I do not change the way I run my business. Yes, I change my mind about who's to do the job. But I do not change the way I operate. I'm perfectly consistent with the way I run this business. If you don't do the work, you don't have the job. If you do the work, you keep the job. And that's what happened to King Saul. God was perfectly in a line, consistent with his principles. He did not change his mind. But as Saul was disobedient, God then changed his mind about Saul having the job, so to speak. God does not change like men. He's perfectly consistent all the time. Now, why is this hard for us to understand? Because we're used to fickle humans who do not keep by their principles all the time. If we think about a human boss, he may fire an employee who isn't doing the work because he's his friend. He might keep the person on. The guy's still doing, not doing the job properly, but it's his friend, so he doesn't fire him. He doesn't keep to the principles. Or a human boss may fire an employee who is doing the work every day simply because he wants a bigger office. He's fickle. He'll let someone go who is doing the work and keep someone who isn't doing the work. That's how we're used to people operating in this world. They fluctuate and change with the wind. And that's us too. One day we like strawberry, the next day we like chocolate milk. We're fickle. Whereas God is not. He does not change like men, as it says in verse 29. He is not a man that he should change his mind. He is perfectly consistent. Yes, God changes his mind. He repents, as we see in verse 11 and verse 35. But only as the situations in his creation change. And then he's always consistent in the way that he treats people in his creation. But you may be saying this morning, but what about King David? He was a dirty rotter too. He was disobedient why wasn't David demoted from kingship for his sin? Well, David was repentant. He was sorry for the disobedience that he had committed. But you say, wasn't Saul repentant in this passage too? Look at the passage, Joel. He's repentant there. Look at verse 24. Then Samuel said to Samuel, I have sin uh, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive me my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. And then if we jump down to verse 30, Saul replied, I have sinned. Isn't he repentant? Isn't he sorry for what he's done? Well, was Saul truly repentant as we consider this passage together? Was he really repentant or was Saul just trying to manipulate Samuel to do what he wants Samuel to do? It's interesting when you look at the passage and you see how Saul operates. Firstly, we see that Saul claimed the animals were spared for God in verse 15. Verse 15, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. This is the plunder. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. And in verse 21, he says the same thing. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. He says, oh, it was all a gift for God. It's like robbing a bank and then putting it in the offertory here at church. But it's for God. But what do we see Saul doing in this chapter before Samuel comes along? 
Look with me at verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. What's Saul doing in Carmel? There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. Does Saul look very keen to sacrifice the plunder there? No, he's more interested in himself. And then it's very interesting the way he speaks to Samuel. Initially, Saul denies his disobedience. In verse 20, but I did obey the Lord. He's saying, I didn't do anything wrong. But then later on, as Samuel presses, he comes to say, oh, yes, I did sin. And even then, we see Saul trying to shift the blame to the soldiers. In verse 15, what do we read? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. And then down in verse 21, the soldiers took sheep and cattle. And then in verse 24, I have sinned, I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people. It's the same word in Hebrew as was being translated soldiers in the NIV. The people. I was afraid of them and so I gave in to them. It's their fault. But what do we read in verse 8 and 9? He, he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. He was involved. He can't blame it on the soldiers. And then when we see that he says sorry in verse 30, what does he say immediately after that? Verse 30, Saul replied, I've sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Why is he repentant? Because he wants Samuel to do something for him. He wants Samuel to honour him so that the people will honour him and continue to follow him as king. And then, who's the one who puts Agag, the king of the Amalekites, to death? After all Saul's repentance, so-called repentance, what do we see in verse 32? Does he say, does Saul say, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites? No, it's Samuel who says, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him confidently, thinking, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel, not Saul, put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. If Saul was really repentant, what should he have been doing? He should have been putting Agag to death there and saying, okay, I will obey the Lord's instructions. I will destroy everything that he told me to destroy. It's not true repentance. You want to see true repentance from a king? Turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, page 562 of of your church Bibles. This is a psalm I probably read more in church than any other psalm. If you ever want to teach someone how to become a Christian and you're not really sure what to get them to, to say to the Lord, take them to Psalm 51. Look at the superscription. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan, prophet Nathan, came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. After King David had sinned, was confronted by a prophet. Remember, Saul, Samuel was a prophet, confronted Saul. We've seen what Saul did when he was confronted with a prophet. What did the King David do? Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That's true repentance from a king who had sinned grievously in his role as king. But even so, interestingly, David is not king today of Israel, of the people of God. He died. Why did he die? Because he had sinned. That's why we all die. Who is king today? It's Jesus, the one who never sinned. And he continues in that role for all eternity. God will not remove Jesus from his office. He has sworn that he is king forever. And he will not change his mind, as we heard in Psalm 110. And why is that? Because Jesus will never sin. So, of course, he will remain king. So why is God's unchanging way of acting important for us this morning? Why is this so important for us to grasp? That God is perfectly consistent. He never changes in the way he acts according to the principles that he's laid out in this world. Well, firstly, God's consistency should make us very afraid if we don't live in obedience to God's spirit. If you're an unrepentant unbeliever, the unchanging God will treat you with absolute consistency. God will, it's not a case of may, he will punish you for eternity in hell. It's 100% because it depends upon a God who does not change. But on the other hand, if we repent, oh, the joy it is to know the unchanging nature of God. And to have that joy produced in us by his spirit. We know that God changes his mind consistently every time a sinner repents. Before you repent, you are condemned to die. Once you repent, you cross over from death to life because God is always consistent. And if you are repentant, he will grant you eternal life. The person who was an object of God's wrath is now an object of his mercy. Every single time, it doesn't matter who you are, if you are totally repentant, God keeps to his principles. He does not change his mind and he gives you his grace and heavenly reward. 100% every time. As long as it's not the fake repentance that we see in King Saul's life. If you are truly repentant, He will give you eternal reward because he is absolutely consistent. The blood of Christ 
shed at the cross was effective for believers yesterday. And it is today as well. If you invest in the share market in this world, it fluctuates. Your shares that were so valuable yesterday may be wiped out today. A little virus may start in a small part of the world, or a large part of the world, and then be distributed around the world. And before you know it, those shares that were so valuable depreciate and may go down to nothing. This world fluctuates constantly. But the blood of Christ is just as valuable today as it was yesterday. And it will be just as valuable tomorrow if the Lord tarries for all those who are repentant. Why? Because God does not change. Like men, he is not deceitful, as we saw in 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. He is consistent every day. And the blood of Christ is always valuable in his eyes and is always sufficient to cover the sins of anyone who is repentant. You can depend upon it because you depend upon a God who does not change like the stock market or anything else in this world. You depend upon one who is perfectly consistent. So are you fearful this morning of the fact that God does not change because you are unrepentant in your sins? And you know you deserve hell and you can know from scripture that he will give you hell if you do not repent. Or does the fact of God's unchanging nature, his perfect consistency in acting towards us who are repentant, that we have a joy in our hearts as we hear about the fact that God does not change and if he has us in his hands today, he will have us in his hands tomorrow. Do you then sing... Chisholm's hymn, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Can you sing that with joy in your heart, knowing that God does not change and he will always treat you as he has promised in Scripture? Because you're repentant, you have a heavenly reward, 100%, more certain than anything in this world, because it is based upon the one who reigns supreme. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the unchanging God who acts in perfect consistency with your creation. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for testing your patience rather than trusting in your revealed laws. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would help us to rest in your ways and rejoice knowing that we are safe because of our repentance, because of our trust in Christ. We are forgiven and you will not change your decree. And so we can rejoice and know that we have a heavenly reward that is 100% certain. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.